Hey, hey, hey. Welcome to episode eight of Craftish. I'm Vicki Howell. Today I'm chatting with the author of the new book, Stamp, Stencil, Paint, Anna Joyce. Anna is a Portland-based textile artist whose work has this really cool aesthetic of a mix of neutral graphics and pops of vibrant colors. Her hand-printed designs have been featured in major publications such as Lucky Magazine and Design Sponge and Oh Joy. But I found her through her publisher and was instantly a fan. In fact, I'm actually currently carrying one of her handbags that I've snatched up right away. She's cool and she's open to conversation about growing up as the daughter of artists, how she teaches her own girls to live creatively, and what it's like running a creative business. So let's meet her. All right, Anna Joyce, it's so nice to have you here on Craftish. I have to say that um, I just find it delightful that I came across you uh, through your publisher. Um, I was not familiar before, and I'm so excited for your book, Stamp, Stencil, Paint. Um, Your style is totally my vibe. Um, And so I'm really excited for you and for the book. So welcome, and thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Vicki. I'm really excited to be on. I... um, as I said, looked through your book um, today, and I noticed that you dedicated it to your parents. So let's start there. Yeah. Were your, you grew up with artist parents. Yes. So from inception, your life was creative. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, my um, both of my parents um, were are artists. Um, my father passed away in two thousand and three, but um, he was a photographer, sculptor, teacher, um, and my mother is a printmaker and painter. So I grew up um, going to the studio with them. So uh, my mom used to take me um, to the studio in a backpack and she would run prints on her press, um, with me in a backpack or in the playpen nearby. And then when I got older, I used to go to my dad's photography and sculpture studio with him and help him, um, in the dark room or kind of, you know, I'd play and he'd, he'd have a chalkboard for me to draw on while I was hanging out with him. And I was always surrounded by, um, by my parents in the studio and I'm an only child. So I didn't have babysitters very often. So they kind of, um, ferried me around from studio to studio when I was growing up. And it seemed completely normal when I was a kid. And then kind of only now as I um, am older and have my own family, do I realize kind of what an extraordinary way to grow up that was. It it seems like a gift. I have to I have to admit, while I was reading your introduction, I was just thinking what an idyllic way to grow into your artist, artist life. Um, Having it sounds like so one of the reasons that I wanted to do this this particular podcast um, or the overall theme is because I truly believe that all sort of the, the creative ethos um, has sort of one common nugget. And I'm not sure what it is, but it doesn't matter if you express yourself through using yarn or paint or a camera or right. pen. There's something that sort of unites us all. And it sounds like your parents sort of embodied that in a way. Your dad was a photographer. Your mom worked with paint and print ma- and ink mm-hmm. and printmaking. Mm-hmm. Um it also seems like your father had a love for music. Yes. So you sort of had the, this um, energy sort of vibrating around you, um, it seems like, for much of your childhood. Did, did you feel like they presented creativity to you as, some, as a big picture like that, that really they were just trying to expose you to that part of your soul or your body or your mind or however you want to think of it? Um, yeah, I feel like they were, they were trying to expose me to... Um, to that kind of part of my, part of my life. But more than anything, it's just 
it's just how it was. I mean, it's just, it was the work that my parents did. It was the way that our house ran. There were always, um, stacks of rag paper out and, uh, you know, colored pencils and crayons. And we made every single birthday card. We made all of our own Christmas cards, our own Valentines. My parents both had thriving studio practices. Um, like I said, they started a, um, an artist run gallery when I was in the second grade, I believe. So not only was I going to the studio with them, but I would also have to go and gallery sit. So all of my parents' friends were also artists. Um, and I was one of the only children in the group. So I was surrounded by artists everywhere. It was just Mm -hmm. kind of how, it was just kind of how I grew up. I think that they definitely made a, an effort for me to be creative, but it, it wasn't necessarily something that they had to focus on simply because it was all around me all the time. It was modeled. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I didn't really know any better. I didn't, um, I remember kind of as I got a little bit older and would go over to friends' houses, kind of noticing if they had, say, framed posters on the wall and thinking, huh, I wonder why they don't just have art on the wall. Like, where are all their prints (laughs) and where are all their photographs and where are all of these big, beautiful paintings from their parents' friends? You know, like, what what is this? So I I don't know. It might be kind of like, um, you know, asking a child of a chef you know, was food a big part of your life? Like, mm-hmm. absolutely. It always mm-hmm. was. Cause that was kind of, I was just surrounded by it all the time. And frankly, a lot of the time, because I was younger, I mean, gallery sitting was terribly boring. I'd, I'd wish that we'd be doing something else. I, you know, sitting on a gallery on a Saturday afternoon wasn't exactly what I wanted to do. My parents would kind of keep me busy, but there weren't any iPads or computers right. or anything to kind of keep me occupied. So I had to play. And I just remember spending endless hours at the gallery watching my parents paint and take the shows up and down and you know it was just it was just how I grew up did you believe that you could create art yeah I did absolutely always there there didn't seem there was no barrier everybody could do it I didn't understand why everybody didn't want to or when people said they couldn't draw. I, I just don't believe that. Um, and one of the things that is uh, was so important to me when I wrote Stamp Stencil Paint, which is, you know, my book, um, is that I really wanted the um, – the barrier for entry for people to be really low. The, the patterns are um, are really simple and appealing, and it's more just about color and about getting your hands dirty and simply taking the time to make something by hand, whether it's perfect or imperfect, but kind of embracing irregularity, embracing um, imperfection, and taking the time to just stamp a polka dot, you know? Yeah. Um, so I always believed that I could make art because there everybody around me was doing it. So why wouldn't, why wouldn't I do it? You write in your book, um, this book is meant to be joyous. It's about trying something new, embracing imperfections, and Mm -hmm. most of all, taking the time to create by hand. And I love that you ended it with, I made this for you. So that you're teaching, you're you're using your authorship as another example of what creation can look like, and that it is a gift that you're giving and you're also receiving I'm assuming every time that you see or will see somebody make one of um, your inspired designs. Yeah, absolutely. I Nothing makes me happier than seeing um, the projects that people have made from the book. It's so overwhelming. I just, it fills my heart with so much joy to see people um, having a connection with what I wrote and the projects that I put forward and the techniques that I taught in the book. It's really, really exciting. And also I made this for you was, um, is also kind of a, 
I didn't really write about this, but it's also kind of a little private love note to my husband as well, because we used to, when we met in college, we met in undergrad in a printmaking class and, um, have been together for a really long time now. And we had a little kind of before, before we met before cell phones, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is kind of crazy, but, uh, we would, you know, when we'd be going on a walk together or something, if we saw something especially beautiful, um, you know, a, a wall where graffiti had been torn down and there were lots of layers or color or something like that, we'd kind of nudge each other and point and say, Oh, I, you know, I made that for you. Um, and then when we got cell phones and we could take photos, we've kind of always had a little collection. If we see something really beautiful, we'll take a photo of it and send it to each other and say, I made this for you. So it's, that was kind of something that was also a part of, um, of that relationship. So the book's a little bit about family, about my parents and, um, also making it for, it was kind of my love letter to the, to the reader that, you know, I made this for you. That is such a lovely Testament. And also I think really important. And I don't think that that particular subject is talked about enough about how just you capturing it with your eyes is enough to be able to give the gift to someone else. I don't think I've ever yeah. thought of it that way. Yeah. Um, but that could be the initial step, especially for someone that maybe was a little bit nervous about unleashing their own creativity. That if you see beauty, whatever that is, beauty is however you define it. Absolutely. Taking a picture or pointing it out even is just your first act of giving creatively. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Abs- I, yeah, I really like the way that you frame that. It's true. And also just taking the time kind of, you know, on your artistic journey to just take a moment to appreciate something beautiful, whether it's, um, you know, right now in Portland, it's spring and the, the, the trees are all blooming. And I just, every time I, my, it's just a feast for the eyes to see all of these beautiful pink trees and just to take the time to appreciate color and beauty and, um, you know, a beautiful painted wall or, or, flowers in a garden or a sunset or something like that can be a really um, incredible jumping off point for creativity and inspiration. And I think even putting yourself in a place where you can feel the vulnerability of letting it move you. Mm -hmm. I know that, um, you know, obviously the time that we're um, recording this, there's obviously, well, this whole year it'll be like that. There's a lot of stuff politically happening and there's, and there's anger on both sides or, or, or whatever, but there's a lot of ugliness happening. And the other day it was just sort of like a tipping point for me of just, you know, just hearing the ugliness being, you know, spouted at each other. And I remembered within, it was like within a maybe 12 hour period, I heard, um, the singer Lord's tribute to David Bowie. Oh, which brought me to tears. I would love to. Yeah, yeah. I like her. Simple. I don't necessarily listen to her on a regular basis, but it was so classic and simple. And then I'd also I also watched with my husband um, Crimson Peak, which is a Guillermo del Toro movie, which is visually just breathtaking. And I had one of those moments that I think that you are speaking about, or two of those moments rather, where it felt like such a gift, like there was so much ugliness, but if you can just stop and be vulnerable to the mm-hmm. beauty that is out there through art and craft and creativity in general, it makes it so much easier to open yourself up to then producing it yourself. Absolutely. And I think that the art of, um, or the practice of making art is one where you have to consistently make yourself vulnerable. Um, you make yourself vulnerable over and over and over again. You make yourself vulnerable to critique if you plan to share your work. You make yourself vulnerable to yourself if you judge your work. You make yourself vulnerable um, when you try something you've never tried before. 
which is uh, scary and hard. And I really wanted to, in this book, to encourage people to come, um, come to making and to try something new without fear and without judgment and to have that vulnerability be something that is a bonus and not a detriment. You know, I mean, people that have never, um, carved a stamp before have, a very different way of approaching it than someone who has been trained in four years of printmaking. You know, mm-hmm. I'm teaching a, um, a class right now, uh, and I did block printing this, this past Tuesday night. And there were some people in there that had never used the carving tools for, for doing a stamp. And I'm, I'm watching them and they're, they're touching the materials in a way that would have never occurred to me and making patterns that didn't, wouldn't occur to me. And I find it so inspiring. Um, and it's, it's about that having that vulnerability be something that you can recognize and say yes, okay, and then also um, pushing past it and making the work anyway and finding something beautiful there. So I agree. I think that that's a you know being vulnerable and and allowing beauty into your life is a is a first step. Is that the main thing that you hope that your students will take away from your classes, or or, or what? Um, how does that look to you? Um, I would say that I think that the main thing that I hope that my students take away from classes and also from the book is just that taking the time to make something by hand is valuable. Yeah. Um, that taking uh, the time to experiment, to be free, to try new things, to work without judgment, work without fear, um, that all of that has value. And to um, maybe, you know, if you've carved a stamp and it feels perfect to turn that stamp upside down, well, what does it look like if you move it around, you know, to, to experiment, to try something new, to push forward, to, um, to just kind of keep moving and keep, um, I, I guess for lack of a better word, just, just experimenting and trial and error and to come from a place where you're open and you're free. And then you let those experiments and that exploration, um, be inspiring and be a jumping off point for another design. How do your students generally respond to that request? Um, I would say that generally they really they really like it. They find a lot of freedom in it. I had um, I had a student the other night that um, that was having a little bit of a hard time with it, and I she had I could tell right away that you know her her designs maybe wanted to be a little bit tighter and a little bit more focused and a little bit more representational, um, and that she was resisting the idea of maybe being a little bit more loose and having a little bit more freedom. So I kind of let her do what she wanted to do and then print that stamp and and see how that felt. And then I asked her to try it my way, and I she looked at me and said, "All right." I'll play your game. <laughs> and I said, okay, let's do this, you know? And at the end of the class, I said, well, how did it feel to play the game? And she said, I liked it. Felt really yeah. good. It was, it was really fun. I thought, all right, well, that's cool. You know? And, and if it's not for, if it's not for people, then that's okay too. You know, it's, if people have a different way of working and I can learn from them. Did you give yourself a little inner high five for that? Oh, always. Yeah. I think of that as that. So my uh, my middle child, uh, my son Tristan. He's fourteen. He's he's super like still waters run deep. And anytime you get like a, what I call it, like just like a side smirk from him, yeah. I'm like, yes, <laughs> like I know that I'm in. And it sounds like a similar situation with your student. She was willing. She was she w- she wanted to remain in control, and she let go yeah. a little bit, and 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 she gave it to you. And yeah, that seems like a go. big artful win. 
Yeah, it was. It was great. And it was, and then what she made was really great and she really loved it, you know, and it was like, oh, look at this, you know, hey, check this out. And she, um, she really enjoyed it. And she, and she was also saying, you know, oh, I'm not good with color. I'm not, not good with this. And it's just like, well, let's explore that. What's that mean? You know, you don't have to, you can work in black and white. You can do this, you can do that. And then it turned out she made this really beautiful two color print that was very simple and very appealing. The colors were really, really nice. And, so I don't know. We'll see. I'm, I'm excited to, um, to, watch, to watch everybody evolve over the course of the class. Well, what's lovely about it is that two colors can be so striking. In your work in particular, you utilize a lot of sort of like citrus colors, but with a yeah. nice, with like a bold neutral, like a mm-hmm. navy or a black or whatever. Mm-hmm. And for me, that's kind of my, I love the opposition of that. It gives it a little funkiness. Um, it's not fussy, but it's artful. And I think that people think that you're welcome. I think that it can be really intimidating. I know from a personal standpoint, you know, I I work with yarn mostly, but working with paint is terrifying if you start layering and thinking about blending and how to, but if you can really just start with a great black and a citrus, you know, and a chartreuse, it can be pretty satisfying. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I, that was another thing about the book is I wanted to give people um, exact directions on how to mix the colors that that I put forward. I mean, every, every project either has the, the color that I use straight out of the jar or the exact proportions to mix the palette that I have. Um, and you know, the, the kind of the formulations and the brand names and everything, because I find it frustrating when I look at, um, a craft book and they'll have something really beautiful and it's like, well, but how did you get there? You know, what was the, how did you mix that gorgeous purple or, where did you get that incredible silk dress that you printed on or something? I can't find one of those. I don't know where it was. It was very important to me that this book be accessible, that you could find these items almost anywhere. And that if I couldn't tell you exactly where they were found, I could give you suggestions on where you might find something. And then not only would, you know, I, I do work a lot with, um, with citrus colors and the neutrals. And one of the things that I talk about, um, for color is just, charcoal gray and then add something with it you almost can't go oh wrong my God. You know? that's like i mean that's a good rule in life yeah, wardrobe exactly interior design i know yeah. for sure i think that's so important too um i know a lot of i have a lot of artist friends i'm sure you do too that when they're teaching or writing books or whatever they really want to just sort of give suggestions they just mm-hmm. want to give inspiration which is lovely in so many ways but Um, when you're working with the masses through doing a book or if you're doing online courses or whatever, a lot of that sort of like just inspirational, aspirational stuff doesn't translate to to a successful way for them, which means that it creates frustration, you know? Mm -hmm. So even though it's awesome to work with all vintage, you know, materials and, you know, and, and free form, for me, this is just speaking for me, but it sounds like we're on the same page here. I really want the people that learn from me to feel an element of success, whatever that means to them. Absolutely. And then go from there. Yeah, exactly. That was, that's, that's exactly what it was for me as well. And I, I worked on a lot of projects that were, that I really, really loved and were really great projects, but there was no way for me to tell someone else how to do this. There was too much of my own hand and my own training and, my own kind of, you know, line quality in it for me to ever translate it into a project that someone else could hope to have the results that they saw in the book. And so it was really important for me that every project was something that I knew that people could execute 
almost exactly the way that they saw it reproduced in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and if it wasn't going to be exact or, and then also to give them the freedom to say, or do it differently. That's okay too. Choose right. your own colors, choose your own substrate, choose, choose your own surface, choose, you know, have fun and play. And, um, and I love that. Well, and you talk a little bit about color stories and I think that mm-hmm. if you don't have a, you know, um, an art background or education, maybe you might think, oh, well, that just, that must have something to do with a color wheel or, you know, the way that certain colors work with each other. But you suggest that it's coming up with sort of an emotional color story. Will you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. For me, um, and this is, again, also, like you said before, this is just speaking for me. Um, colors are very emotional. Uh, I have a, I have an emotional, visceral response to certain colors. I, um, and when I'm coming up with color stories, I often will think like, gosh, you know, I've been, you know, this is actually interesting that you brought this up because I I recently have been thinking I'm obsessed with purple right now. Why am I obsessed with purple? I haven't, I haven't liked or thought about purple since like the seventh grade. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't really know what's, what's going on with this. And then I was looking back through a bunch of photographs that I've taken. I take photographs, um, all the time, every day, kind of everywhere. Um, anytime I'm inspired and I have a kind of a visceral response, I'll take a photo just on my phone. And I was going back and scrolling through all my photos and realized that all the pictures that I've been taking are of the flowers that are blooming in Portland right now. Mm -hmm. And they're these incredible tulip magnolia trees and the exact color purple that I have been using in my work is the exact purple that's in these magnolia trees. And it's like, oh, of course, that's, that's what it is. It's, it's from my surrounding. It's the, um, it's the emotional response to spring coming and, and that, that's the response to it. So for my color stories, I'll think about a mood that I want to convey. So if I'm wanting to convey, um, you know, a happy mood or a bright, energetic mood, I might use um, hot pinks or bright greens or oranges or things like that. If I'm wanting a little bit more of a subdued, classic mood, if I want people to feel calm and kind of at home, um, I might go to a dusty navy and a pale cream or a charcoal gray and a light yellow, things that are just a little bit more subdued and a little bit more subtle than something really bright and energetic. Right. And I think um, that's important also because we have sort of modeled for us what colors should evoke certain mm-hmm. periods of life or, or emotions, you know, oh, well, we want it to look baby. So let's do whatever that means. I hate when people right. say we want it to look baby. You know, what does that right. mean? Do you want like cool kid? Do you want like, right. do you want like goth baby? Do you want like <laughs> traditional? Um, and so I think it's, it's also the freedom to um, interpret whatever feel or look the you want the way that you want to. Absolutely. Absolutely. You mentioned um, earlier that um, there's a certain vulnerability once you start to present artwork for critics, like to be critiqued. Yes. So I was wondering, since you, you were basically, you had sort of like this foundation, you were like foundation of support Mm -hmm. for being creative in a way that I imagine that a lot of children who have parents with more traditional jobs don't have. Right. I'm wondering what it was like the first time that you were given a critique um, uh, from an outside source versus <laughs> versus not having a parent that's like, oh, that's terrible, or you're never going to be an artist. I hear this so often from people that they were, you know, kind of shut down from the beginning from a parent or a teacher or whatever. And since it seems like you had sort of the reverse experience, I'm wondering once it became a reality. 
Well, you know, it's interesting. I, um, you know, what's funny is that I, I, um, I actually, I really like critique. Um, I think that one of the reasons that, um, I've been able to be successful in certain areas, especially with writing the book is I take critique. Well, um, I've been told, I've been told I take critique. Well, I enjoy it. You should I take like a hearing, class on that. Yeah. <laughs> I like hearing people's feedback. It's very valuable. Um, and, but you know, what's funny is that my harshest critique was always my mother. Um, okay. and it was, um, sometimes difficult to hear. And I vowed to myself that I would never say the things that she said to me because they always bothered me. Okay. And of course now I say them all the time. Um, and I understand <laughs> what they are, but my, you know, my, my art teachers, um, because I grew up in an artistic family, because I wasn't afraid to use, um, uh, real artist supplies, you know, I mean, we had, instead of drawing on computer paper, I had rag paper to draw on. It was my mom's, um, uh, belief and also my belief that, um, you should always draw on good paper so that first, when you actually go to make a piece of art, you're not scared of your materials. Mm-hmm. Um, it can be, it can be intimidating to draw on a $5 piece of paper. You know, you don't want to make a, a bad line or whatever. Um, and also, uh, the, her belief that if you made a masterpiece, you had something that you could save you know? Um, so I wasn't intimidated by using real materials. So I found that at least in high school and, um, when I was first starting out that my art teachers really gushed over my work and they really, really liked my work and I had a lot of confidence. And it was when I came home that my mom would say, "Uh uh-uh, there's, you're, you're trying to make a print. There's fingerprints on the edge of this. You need, that's, that's not acceptable. Your, um, you didn't tear your paper with the grain. You didn't, you know, I mean, she, she's a, a master printmaker right, uh, and, right. and it was, it was very important to her that I, and this was the quote that always drove me insane that I now say to people all the time, which is to pay attention to detail. And I am a very spontaneous maker. Yeah. Um, I will often, um, act before I think, Um, and it usually works out, but sometimes I'll have kind of catastrophic mistakes along the way and make a huge mess or spill something or work with the wrong materials, but I'll have a tendency to just kind of be automatic and go and have a visceral response and not pay attention to detail. And when I was applying for college, my mom and I, I I remember butting heads with her a lot because she was like, no, Anna, your portfolio, it needs to be this size. These paper, you know, your, all of your prints should be cut down to the exact same size. If you're going to have your drawings, they need to be, they, you know, everything should be 24 by 24 and then everything should be 36 by this and everything, you know, it's like it all had to be right. We needed to have the archival interleaving between each page. And when I went to, um, the, uh, the pre-college interview with my portfolio in hand with my initials embossed in gold on my, <laughs> on my portfolio that I'd been given for graduation, yeah. you know, I showed up with, uh, you know, 36 prints in a collection on Reeves BFK printmaking paper. And I had, there, I was next to kids that had, you know, pencil drawings on lined notebook paper. And it was like, my mom had prepped me for going in to have a professional presentation. So I think that, you know, I, I never really got as harsh of a critique at school than I did at home. Yeah. I mean, an assumption. Yeah, for for sure. And I I do appreciate for her for that. It's funny. It sounds a little bit like, um, a battle between artisanship and artistry. Yeah. 
that you're dealing oh, with? Because well, there's a mix. There's a mix. Because for you think of artisans as really paying close attention to detail and everything just being pristine, well, but artists a certain sense of abandon to let sort of whatever flow out of their fingers, and that seems yes. like it would really um, sort of like viewers can't see my hands right now, but like clash <laughs> clash against each other. That would seems conflicting. Um, I think that there is conflicting. Um, you know, it can be conflicting, but if you if you don't pay attention to detail and you don't have that artistry, then I at least personally as someone who's a viewer of, of art and of craft, I have a hard time being let into people's work if it's messy. No matter how good your ideas are, um, I very much have the, uh, the soul of my mother. I can't, I can't look at prints for, for what they are if the edges are torn incorrectly and there are fingerprints all over the page. Mm -hmm. I mean, I just... it. It, it takes me out of the work. It's like a pride so, of work thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think that there's a certain pride of presentation. And um, when the two come together and there is craft and um, attention and also spontaneity, that to me seems to be like the, the, the kind of the perfect place for reaching the widest audience. You've got technique, um, you know, um, emotion, vulnerability, and also just presentation and just people being kind of masters of their craft and all of that coming together. And once you, and it's also very much like, you know, I think a lot about, um, the kind of the 10,000 hours, like Malcolm Gladwell's, you need to be, you know, practice for 10,000 hours to become an expert. And there's a certain, um, when you're just getting started or, you know, or, or, or say, you know, learning to play the scales before you can play the piano, before you can do jazz. It's like taking that time to learn your craft makes it so that you can be sp spontaneous um, while still maintaining that level of detail and that level of artistry. You're not thinking about it. I noticed a small pair of I noticed a lot of clogs in your book. <laughs> I like the shoes in the book. But I noticed a small pair. Are you a mom now? I am. Yes, I have two daughters, ages um, seven and ten. I feel like um, the way that your mom parented you was very, um, like taking a, 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 a side that she was an artist, was very much of that time from when we were kids. The, yeah. way, the way that she spoke to you, the way that she held you up to standards, the way... Yes. And that it's very, we're in a very different time of parenting yes. now. Yes. We're very, and I still will find out if when our kids do or do not live in our basements. I live in, in Texas. We don't have basements. So, <laughs> but you know, I, I don't know. I don't know if we're, if the kind of nurturing we do now is going to create these wonderful, empowered human beings, or if we're doing it a, them a, an extraordinary disservice. I don't know. But do you feel, well, do you, first of all, as a mother, do you struggle with that at all? Or of do course. you, do you parent the way that your mom parents? Do you, do you critique your, your daughters the way that you were critiqued? Um, I do not to the extent that, um, that I think that I was critiqued, but also when I was getting that critique, I was 17 years old and I was, I was trying to, I was applying to college. Okay. You know, I, I, I was, I was going to present my work to the Rhode Island school. So this isn't when you're seven no. and playing with, okay. No, 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 no. I was never, I, yeah, I didn't mean to sound like that. I was never critiqued when I was, um, when I was just playing or, okay. or making, I mean, my mom, you know, would always, you know, if you were doing Valentine's, don't get glue everywhere and use your best handwriting. 
you know, that type <laughs> yeah. of thing. Yeah. But, but no, I mean that, that critique was more when I was, when I began to start to present myself professionally or have aspirations to, um, be a professional artist, which I, not to get off topic, but I actually received quite a bit of pushback from my parents. They weren't, really? they weren't really that excited about it. Um, and I think it was more just because they knew it was a, a, a tough a road to hoe. Yeah. And I think that they would have been excited for me to have maybe gone into a, um, a career where, you know, there's steady paychecks mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. um, health benefits and, you know, all of those things, they, they knew what I was getting into. Um, and so they weren't able to be as romantic about it as I was at 16, 17, 18 years old, because they understood what, yeah. what road lied ahead, uh, or lay ahead. But, um, no, as a mom, I would say that I also, I, I talk to my, I try to talk to my girls a lot about hard work. Um, and about dedication and about doing your best. And yeah, I've, I've absolutely told my daughter, like, this is beautiful. Your sentiment was nice, but your handwriting looks terrible. And we're, we're, we're not sending it out. Like, no, you, you need to do it again. You know, especially if I haven't gotten there yet, (laughs) if we're going to do that now, I'm also very lax about a lot of things. Their room is a pigsty. I, I just, I, I try to choose my battles. I'm sure they have much too much screen time. I mean, you know, all of that. Um, but I also think that the best thing that I can do, and I definitely, um, I, I can see this coming back is, is what I know I can do is to show them what it looks like to work hard, yeah, to show yeah. them what it looks like to follow your dreams. They were with me every single step of the way. When I wrote my book, they, they were with me from my first phone call with Melanie Fallick up until yeah. the champagne bottle that we popped when I signed my contract. We went down as a family and found my book at Powell's books, um, here in Portland, which is, yeah. you know, this incredible bookstore. And there's a photograph of me with my arms around my girls holding the book. And I know that they'll never forget that, you know, and it's like, they watched me struggle and work. Um, it's in the book, but you know, I made that book at, um, at our dining room table. So we as a family ate dinner at our coffee table for 14 months over the course of writing that book, because there wasn't a place for me to make the work that I needed to make in the light that I needed to have Mm -hmm. that wasn't our dining room table. And my incredible husband, one weekend, my mother took the girls when I was writing the book every three to four weeks for a long weekend. Um, so I was able to have the time oh, so to, to make it. Yeah, it was incredible. And I wouldn't have been able to do it without that time. Um, cause the girls were pretty young when I first started and the first weekend that my mom had the children, Victor brought up this big, gorgeous piece of canvas and put it on the table and spread the tape, put the leaves out on the table and pushed it up in front of the window and said, you know what, here, make here for the weekend. Cause I was struggling trying to get, I'm so sensitive to color as we talked about before. And I needed yeah. to have natural light. Um, my, my studio for my business was in the basement at the time. And I was trying to work down there and I just, I kept running up and down the stairs. Is this yellow, right? Does it work with the, yeah, I couldn't yeah. tell the different lights that I had going on down there. And, um, the studio just never went away. And I worked there for, yeah, over a year. (laughs) And so my family and especially my children were, were very involved with every single thing that I did. And one of the things that was really amazing, I mean, my youngest Iris was four when I started working on the book and I never, ever had to tell them to not touch my studio, to, to, to not play with my supplies. There was just this ingrained respect for what was happening in that corner of the house. We live in a very small, um, apartment in Portland, like right in the heart of the city. And we probably have about 800 square feet of living space. And I was taking over a good 150 of it (laughs) for over a year. And it's just, 
that's where mom was and that's what she was doing. And she was writing a book and, and those were her projects and that's Mm -hmm. where it was. So I'm hoping that I'm teaching my girls how to be, um, powerful and strong and focused and motivated by, um, watching me that all also probably assuages my guilt for like not picking them up after school and taking them to go do fun stuff because I've got to run to a fabric store. I don't, you know, I I can, (laughs) I can attest that. Yes, it does. It does help (laughs) assuage that particular brand of guilt. Right. You Um, know, so it's like, Oh God, I'm sure that they're missing out on all sorts of things because you know, their mom is ambitious and trying to forge this new path, but I'm hoping that the, yeah. <laughs> that what they're gaining is, is valuable too. You know what though? I, you know, I, I have to believe that, um, just us all sort of being in the same place is a different kind of gift and they're seeing, you know, because I write my books at home too. Yeah. Um, they're seeing, the process, the whole process, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and every single Absolutely. book gets ugly. There's a ton. <laughs> it gets ugly. That, that, that. Every <laughs> single book, I get to a point saying, oh, yeah. "What the f have I done? Like yeah. what? The, I, I, I'm, I'm not good at that. I can't do. You know, all of these things. And they, you know, I mean, obviously, you censor yourself, but they do see all of all of that. But then they're there for that picture. I have a similar yeah. picture with with my children, um, and my daughter. Um, who's six and a half now, almost seven, she, I, I worry that I've sort of poisoned her creatively. It's funny, the things that we do to ourselves as mothers, but because I am at home, as you were, right. she's also seeing, and all of my kids, but it, I have two boys and a girl, her especially, she sees the stress that's involved of course, in those deadlines. Of course. And so she's not at all interested in knitting or crocheting, you know, like at all. Knitting and crocheting is a path to torture. Exactly, exactly. Although I say that, and, you know, she has a little bit in sewing because I don't do as much work sewing. Like, it's mostly that. Although I will I will see her come up and she'll slap, like, a Post-it note on my computer saying, this is one of my styles, will you make it? And it'll be, like, a little picture of socks or oh, something yeah. like that. So maybe something's going getting through to her but I it's funny because I think that our careers are in, are embedded in their lives in ways that people that have a sort of an office job don't don't deal with yeah I would say so and also because it's so personal I mean when you're when you're an artist your work comes from inside you yeah. know I mean it's it's not I mean if you have a bad day um at the office not to diminish anybody else's work I don't I don't mean to do that it's just you know, I mean, if somebody—it's no, a different really, experience. It's just a different experience. Yeah. If somebody really doesn't like my work, it, it really feels like they don't like me. It's not because I get that. There's, there's no wh- who I am and what I make have no boundaries for me. I mean, it is, it is a part of me. It's, it's, it's my emotions. It's what I'm feeling. It's what I'm seeing. Yeah. And so you're right. That stress is very. Um, my girls see it too. They know. They know it's just, it's yeah. part of it, but hopefully, hopefully that's important because not nothing in, in life that's worth having is, um, usually comes easily. And yeah. they should know that if you're going to work on something that's really hard, that you really care about, yeah, there, there might be some tears, there might be some stress, there's going to be some takeout, there's going to be, you know, I mean, it's just, uh, you know, mommy might make roasted broccoli and fried eggs for dinner for eight months. Like we just don't know what's going to happen. It's like, you know, it's just, uh, it's a, 
it's an interesting experience. And I think that they, and also they don't know any better. They don't have different parents. They'll only know what kind of upbringing they had and how it was either ordinary or or extraordinary as they begin to forge their own path and their own future, you know? So my, I try to, um, I try to just really embrace my children's interests. Like my eldest is, um, is really interested in comic books and, um, writing comic books and drawing comics and, um, fan fiction and all of these things that I had no interest in when I was 10 years old. And yeah. I'm, I'm just trying to embrace it and learn from her and be with her. And, you know, my seven year old wants to run and jump and she's very physical. I was just kind of a bookworm that wanted yeah. to sit at home. So I learned from them, you know, you'll have to send some of that fan fiction over. My daughter would love to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We're a big fan family. She's well, then- writing a Harry Potter fan fiction. Ooh, I yeah. love it. I love it. Mm-hmm. Well, no matter what they see at the end of the day, I guess that they will see from you and hopefully from all of us that are out there working um, with our craft that at the end they can say, I made this for you. Yeah, I made this for you. Exactly. You know, and and it's it's beautiful. It's beautiful to have a art. And, you know, my children are growing up in, in the same way that I grew up. I never thought that that was going to happen. But my husband's a painter and a sculptor and he teaches um, art just like my father taught hmm. Um, college and my husband teaches at the Pacific Northwest College of Art and has shows every 18 months and so they're growing up in it as well so it's an interesting um, very cyclical it's very interesting to see it yeah yeah thank you so much it's been an absolute delight chatting with you (laughs) thank you so much take care if you're ever in Austin please look me up Oh, I can't. I w- I'm dying to go to Austin. I would love to, and I would love to look you up. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Take care. Anna Joyce's book, Stamp Stencil Paint, is available online and in stores now. Her hand-printed textiles, bags, and clothing can be found on her website. For more information on all of this, you can check out the show notes page at vickihowell.com slash craftish. Craftish is produced in Austin, Texas by me and mixed and edited by Dave Campbell. If you like this episode, then you might also like some of the past episodes. Check out shows one through seven on SoundCloud or iTunes. And speaking of iTunes, while you're there, don't forget to leave a rating or review. It helps with visibility and frankly, my self-esteem. Kidding, not kidding. You can keep up with my projects by following at Vicki Howell on social media. If you're looking for a way to bring a little creativity into a very busy schedule, consider checking out my lunch hour knit kits through Kitterly. Each accessory is designed to be made in just a handful of work breaks. Maybe you don't know how to knit or crochet, but you want to, or you might not be interested at all, but you are interested in monetizing your craft. Well then, my friends, maybe give my online courses on Creative Live a try. My approach is accessible and attainable, and I try to make it so it feels like you're learning something, but we're just hanging out together. You can find those at creativelive.com. Tune into the next episode of Craftish with my guest, crochet curator, Tamara Kelly of Moogly. That'll go live on Tuesday. Until next time, take time to revel in your craft, whatever it may be. Breathe in, craft out.